Yeah, the hell's that, mate? Looking good, won't you? It's on. All right. Um, okay, let's just check. I'll get my Bible organised here. I'll read it upside down. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Have you ever been to a party or a gathering where it's been going absolutely fine? You're excited, friendly, got something to share with your friends, and all of a sudden someone turns up and intervenes with that party or that gathering and sucks all the oxygen out of that room and you feel deflated. deflated. Or have you ever been to a meeting or to a boardroom where you have a good idea or a suggestion that could actually help something move forward? But you get this inkling that the structure is very set in its ways. It's said in the ways that those that are the delegated leaders, they want to lord it over people. They have grabbed hold of this position and see it as a rule of power rather than a rule of service. And they have an invested interest in them being the tall poppies and the other people being small in stature. They have an invested interest to play out that political or power game. But there's one thing that you can't manage, stifle, or try to curtail in a particular manner, and that is the gospel. The gospel cannot be drowned out, suffocated, or negated. And this is what's happening here in this verse, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. We have a group of people, and they're a bunch of party poopers. They just don't like having a good time. They just got to go in and anything that's liberating, let's put a spoiler alert on that. And we started off last week with John chapter 3, where we looked at the crippled man, the lame man, I don't like that word crippled, the lame man was placed outside the temple gates where everyone would walk in, as John explained last week. And then people would know him because he's been there for years because we know from chapter 3 that he has this disability from a very early age. Then along comes Peter and John. They're heading up to the temple, probably with the idea of preaching. I don't know that they had it in mind that they were going to heal someone that morning and the unfolding consequences of that positive action. Nevertheless, they heal the man at about 3 o'clock, a little bit after... And then they move into the temple courts, it says, in, in that area. Now, the temple courts, the, the temple is broken up in the sense there's one section for the Gentiles, there's one section probably for the women, and there's a few other sections. It's a little bit debatable how it was broken up. But we know that in chapter 3, they went into one of these courtyards, and it was near Solomon's colonnade, and we, this is where Peter starts to speak in verse 1 to 2, and I'll just read that. The priests and the, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection of the dead. I'll just stop there for a moment. So the the word that sticks out for me in this passage is that they were greatly disturbed. 
And I'll just explain a little bit of the reason why that is so. Number one, you've got in that verse the priests. They do all the ceremonies in and around the temple. And then you have another guy there that says the captain of the guard. And well, who's this larrigan? So he's a bloke who's like the chief of police. He comes in and he organises everyone, he supervises everything, and just makes sure everything's running smoothly. Probably the chief of police is probably not quite a good example. Maybe he's more like the uh, oversight or chief person running a museum. And it's interesting, I love that term museum, because I don't think this political party realises that this is now archaic. It is a museum and it is outdated. And they haven't quite woken up to that yet. And another um, person, group of people there is the Sadducees. Now, one thing you need to learn about the Sadducees is they collaborate with the Romans to keep themselves in power so they can lord it over people. So there's a little bit of to and fro between those. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in angels. And the one thing, most of all, they don't believe in the resurrection. So you think, what the heck are they doing there? Good question. But they're there because of a revolt that happened back in history through the Maccabean Revolt. And in the Maccabean Revolt, they thought that was some of the answers of God's kingdom coming and taking place. Nevertheless, they still want power and they want control. And the word that makes them get carried off is the issue to do with the resurrection. They really upset the party poopers, the fun police, step in being the Sadducees. In verse 3, and, and so there's absolutely a clash that starts in this conversation straight away. In verse 3 and 4, Peter and John are seized. There's no debate. I mean, I, I'd like the opportunity, excuse me, can I just explain myself? No, nah, you come with us. I feel ripped off. I, I just, if you ever been in an argument and you've misunderstood and you feel like it's not complete and you just feel like, I, I just got to explain myself. I feel so ripped off at this moment as they are carried away. But another thing that I learnt in uh, verse 3 and 4, and I'll just read that as well. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, they don't know if that 5,000 was in that particular moment, or 5,000 in total. There's a bit of a discussion amongst the, the big wigs that do theological college in that respect about whether it was 5,000 in that moment or 4,000 since Pentecost had started. But the thing here is, once again, the gospel moves forward because it says there that many heard and repented and turned to God in that moment. So even though the the people preaching the message have been carted off and captivated and put in captive. The message still moves forward. It's one thing that I'm very grateful of, that I, the gospel doesn't end if I was to be persecuted and locked up. The gospel is to me like the sun. It's the only analogy that I could think of that sort of illustrates God's power and wisdom in the minute in the minute of calamity that seems to be surrounding Peter and John is the sun, despite the blackness of the universe, still keeps shining, still keeps giving, and still keeps moving forward with its light. Anyhow, so what's unfolding here because of the resurrection issue and the stance of Peter and John, 
they're actually entering into very troubled waters. And I wonder if ever you can look up John 15, verse 18. And I think this is a message when uh, persecution and trials come our way, just as it is that the troubled waters that Peter and John are stepping into. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to this world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So they're moving into trouble, deep waters, to the point that they actually end up, the next day, ending up in a court scene. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm not real keen about running up to a court scene. I've only ever been in a court once. And um, when I was young, I thought I was pretty tough. Have you ever seen those big round hay bales that the farmers put out? And uh, you look at them, and I've always lifted the small hay bars, and I thought, yeah, they're pretty easy, throwing them up four high on a truck in my early younger fitter days. I looked at me farm mate one day and says, you reckon you can humanly move one of them? And he goes, uh, don't know about that. He says, I haven't tried it. He goes, no, well, I'll try it for you. So being a rugby league player, I stood back and I thought I'd attack it, drop the shoulder in it, serve a budget. About two minutes later, I woke up. <laughs> my mate said, you've knocked yourself out. Unconscious yet pelican. So I'm pretty brave or pretty stupid when it comes to big things like that. But when it comes to court scenes and other things like that, oh man, I'm like a mouse. And the time that I did go to court was to pick up a young lady who'd held up a service station with a screwdriver when I was doing youth work. Now she suffered from uh, mental challenges. And the way that she would do it was to rob the service station, hold up, and they she'd ask for something silly like a Kit Kat or something like that, eat the Kit Kat and sit on the doorstep of the service station waiting for the police. Because it was her only way of crying out for help. I'm not coping and I need help and I need to be locked up so that I'm not going to harm others and I'm not going to harm myself. And the only job I had to do was pick her up at the end of the court case if she was released to take her back to the institution that was caring for her. I walked in the door on that day, my knees are knocking and I'm shaking and carrying on. I'm thinking, what are you worried about? You're just picking up someone. So for me, as you'll find out later on, that uh, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, if I ever in court, I'd want more. I want the Holy Spirit poured all over me, ready to take on a situation like this. But they do, they turn up at court. And um, the court is sort of rigged in a way. You've got Annas. Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the, the relative, they're in on the clan. There's a bit of nepotism even going on as well as the rig situation that's before them. And they ask the one question. What power, what name did you do this? It's interesting, in that comment, they're not disputing that someone actually got healed. They're disputing who wanting to know what is behind this. Why are you doing it? And for me, it's at this point that Peter starts to stand up. And I don't know if his knees are knocking or not, but he's filled with the Spirit. 
And he goes to answer that very question. He's either very brave, or he's about to be very brave, or very silly. Because you can imagine the barrister, if he had one, he doesn't. He's defending himself. The barrister will be tapping him on the shoulder saying, whatever you do next is very important. Because do you realise that this is the same mob, Caiaphas and his clans, that put Jesus on the cross? So Peter, do you really realise where you are and what's unfolding right at this moment? By the end of this day, you could be headless or you could be crucified yourself. So he steps out in verse 18 and 12, uh, verse 18 and 12 filled with the spirit, not like necessarily nervous key. And then he addresses the issue. But I want to pick up on a verse here that I think is encouraging for us and also for Peter at this possible time. Luke chapter 12, verse 11. When you are brought before the, the, set, the synagogues, rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So Jesus has told Peter and these guys, your future is standing in front of synagogues. And this time is now, is starting to unfold in the book of Acts. And I wonder if Peter at this moment has remembered these things that Jesus has spoken to him at this moment. Through the Spirit is now ready to face the evil one. And he answers the question. Not only does he answer the question, say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I did this. He goes on and actually gives them a sermon to try and point out their evil. Who crucified him? He didn't have to say that, but he's answered the question in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, the Sadducees have a problem about that because of the resurrection, but Jesus could have left, I mean, sorry, Peter could have left it out. But he pursues the matter, filled with the Spirit, looking for conviction from those that are in the injustice that is standing before them. So it is in Jesus' name, Jesus of Nazareth, that I did this, whom you crucified. Then it goes on, and also another part of that verse, and I've shut my Bible, I don't know why. And it goes on, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if you are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ whom crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. So, he's quoting Psalm, he's quoting Old Testament scripture to try and help these guys understand. Do you see what's unfolding in front of you? That God's will and even his projections through the prophets, through Psalm 118 verse 22. And there's no room 
to please people here. You can only please Christ or you can please man. The interesting thing here, though, is that at least they see that there's courage involved. The courage that they actually observe is that they're willing to talk about you guys doing it. He's calling them out, putting himself in danger. He's talking about resurrection. Sadducees are getting probably a little bit more angrier. And they are ordinary men talking as if they'd been in the temple and but beyond, beyond the temple people's understanding and knowledge by quoting scripture to them, such as the psalm. And they are, they're sitting there going, well, actually the word says they are astonished. So there's just an inkling of hope that these guys might turn from their corrupt ways. But no, instead of if they were to truly be courageous like that of uh, Peter, they don't. They do the total opposite, the human behaviour that comes out. If they don't believe in the resurrection, they should have followed through with it. They could have gone up to the Romans and said, nah, let's get rid of him like Jesus. Please, he's a pain in the outside, he's caused trouble. No, they don't even have the courage to do that. Not like the courage, in contrast, that of Peter. And instead of dealing with it, they take this soft-hearted action because they are not sold to their own convictions speak no more of this speak no more of this just hush it up a little bit we've got a problem it's total human nature of covering up even though they don't follow their own principles and yet underneath it all although they are astonished they still think that they are in control of the situation and if you read on a little bit more of that verse while you're there there's one thing that probably stops them and that is just that the whole of Jerusalem knows about it. The whole of Jerusalem is understanding and seeing what's unfolded. And it's pretty hard to work against something like that that's unfolded. So they are grappling to try and keep control and keep the status uh, operating. But before them has someone with physical evidence. The man is standing there, standing there, not at the front gate, but now he has been redeemed He's standing there. Not only has he been shown mercy in a physical world, but he now knows that his Saviour lives and that his Saviour loves them. Nevertheless, let's try and hush it up. They do the best they can and then they call them back in again. Please don't speak of it, don't speak of it. But no, Peter understands that you, can only, you can't please both. Ultimately, you have to please man. Oh, sorry, God, not man. And I think that's the thing that it stood out to me as I was preparing this. I do a lot of cross-cultural work at Bible College, did a lot about listening to the content of um, people's discussions, not so much uh, the, the content, but listening to the process of all the body language and everything that's happening around you. I think that's very relevant. But what I think has happened over the years is Satan has got into me and kidnapped those training things and turned it to being not bold, not diligent in sharing the gospel in a clear, precise form. So for me, the new journey out of this is to learn from Peter and that the spirit be filled within me and that I not try to hang on to this world because it'll be failing. I mean, I've got my house, new one there. We're knocking off the bill because of the interest rates fairly quickly. And I worry about it all the time. And I think, what are you worrying about? Seriously, Jesus could turn up tomorrow. 
And then I, I look at, you know, I, I don't have super because I did mission for 15 years. I don't have super to fall. Oh, well, I do have super, but what I'm saying is it's not much. It's out of this world. Yes, it is. <laughs> super is out of the world. No, well, yeah, out of this world. Though I can't afford this world. Um, but my wife always thought I ha she had super. And she has. She's got a bit more than me. But I thought we're up here. Anyhow, she opened it up and showed me the other day. That's the first time since we've been married in five years she's shown me a super. I nearly fell over backwards. I felt a bit rude. I said to her, is that all I've got? Are you serious? I was banking on you. You've been working all your life. I've been on the mission field and you've got... What? Where did it go? Is it stuck in some super fund somewhere else? And all my nervousness and all this stuff started worrying about all these things. And I was thinking, you know what, Keith? I'm not saying this would happen. The Chinese could invade us one day. You know, Jerusalem got taken over. All these things I'm worrying about, and God is in control. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not responsible and I don't pay my interest and I don't be responsible. and I just, uh, Leave it in Jesus' hands. A lot of Christians do that. Let's just leave it in Jesus' hands. I've even been on beach missions when the water's coming up, the tent's getting flooded. Instead of taking practical things, like move the tent, get it out of the road. Someone said, right, let's pray. As you watch the tent come, like, are you real? Are you for real? So sometimes, yes, we do need to be responsible. But the praying and that's needed and reliance on God, that doesn't leave us out of the picture. But it's certainly a partnership. But the challenge for me is in trusting God because God in this moment, Peter and John, walk free. They have another opportunity to lead the church and cement its foundations in Jerusalem in the push to move forward into the whole of the world. They trusted in God and they didn't trust in man. And it brings back to me, I don't know what your memory is, but one of my favourite stories of the Bible is Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego. And there used to be a little song, I've forgotten, was it Sheets Back, something rough and off the bed we go or something like that, but anyway. Um, so it's my dream and I just this week shared Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to the kids here at our devotion at the childcare centre. And it just really touched me. Keith, you need the spirit. You're a chicken. Yeah, you can take on a hay bale. But can you take on Satan and all the things that he's going to throw at you in the coming years, the coming months? Be diligent. Be responsible. But don't think you can control the situations. Otherwise, there is no faith. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these witnesses that stand at the foundation of the growing of your church. And we are here today on this premises, in this time and space, because of their faithfulness, willingness to represent you in a very awkward, life-threatening circumstance. But I just love, Lord, that the scriptures pinpoint the stupidity of the world, but also the understanding that the world will never take us as our own because we do not belong to the world. So give us wisdoms to share the gospel, even debate it at times, Lord, knowing though, like Jesus, sometimes we just need to stand silent that the moment before Pilate may be before us all one day. Give us strength and wisdom to know when to speak and when to know that all the speech has done, it is now time just to totally rely on you.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sorry to Kim, I forgot.